So today I'm speaking to Ayan Pestelas. I hope that I'm pronouncing it correctly. Uh, Ayan is based in Manila in the Philippines and he's got a big track record on uh, different ways of testing for software teams. He's also a management 3.0 um, workshop trainer. He will explain more about what, that, uh, what that's about. And he's got a lot of experience with distributed, agile distributed work. He's currently sitting in a co-working space, which is, of course, fitting our purposes. So there might be some background noise, but I could hear Ian clearly. So Ian, maybe give a little inter introduction about yourself. Uh, thank you for the introduction, Hugo. So my name is Ian, um, not Ian. It's uh, quite different. Sometimes some people call me Ian, sometimes Ian. That's okay. Uh, from Manila. Okay. And, uh, well, my primary areas of interest are in uh, experience design, agile management, context-driven testing, and um, over the last three years, I've also dabbled with uh, startups and entrepreneurship. So I speak in various conferences on those topics as well, uh, here and uh, a couple of engagements in Singapore before. Uh, my role now has evolved into more of like a product management, which is good because it's uh, incorporating all those um, areas i suppose and i'm enjoying it quite well i also do run some community meetups here in the philippines uh for software testing primarily so i organize the software test management roundtable here in manila it's patterned after kem kaner's uh similar like event in the u.s he's one of the the sort of the thought leaders in the context-driven community and then i also actively collaborate with the uh, software testing philippines community group and the agile philippines group as well and uh, like what you've said earlier i also conduct workshops here uh, in manila for agile management and software testing cool what impresses me is that your level of english is really fantastic i haven't worked with people from the philippines much but i've i've recently hired a uh, personal assistant who is also flossom at english so i'm very impressed and i also think that in the philippines you are sort of ahead of Maybe not the rest of Asia, but I think you're far ahead with Agile, with you know different ways of testing that you're an expert in. Seems I'd like to think so. Yeah. yeah. Seems that the software community is sort of quite evolved over there. It so, is, it is, yeah. Uh, maybe let's start with the testing background because I think that's your main areas of uh, main area of expertise. Because I, I, I read your LinkedIn profile and you know, for, for, I think for a lot of people who are into maybe product management or not so deeply involved in the technical side of software development, testing is just, you know, take a screen, start pushing some buttons, fill a couple of fields and see what happens. So what, what kind of, because I read several different ways of organizing testing in your profile. Maybe explain a bit about those and how this can help software teams. Yeah, thanks for that. Well, one, I guess one problem that a lot of people get with software testing is they think of it as a phase of software development, uh, which is sometimes um, becoming a problem in terms of how different Thanks for that question. Uh, I think one of the things that a lot of teams, people, and uh, businesses are getting wrong about software testing is that you, you know, a lot of people think of it as a phase of software development when, in fact, it shouldn't be. 
And this right. is where, you know, it has become a problem in the past where, you know, the testing phase becomes more of like a bottleneck to the entire process. Now, a different way to look at it is when agile and context-driven testing come into, you know, into play over the past 10 to 15 years, the testing now evolves into more of like uh, integrated into the phases of each phase of the development rather than a separate one. So it's not like a throw off the wall kind of thing as compared before where you know a group of testers run through the scripts that they've prepared now the competency is evolving into more of like during design phase or even requirements phase and also during the architectural phase you start you know visualizing things up and um, nailing a lot of tests already and starting to to sort of bring out a lot of the risks that that uh, the software development team might encounter. So now we're, we're shifting the conversation from detect, uh, sorry, defect detection to defect prevention at this stage. So this is where a lot of things like experience design and agile are, are coming into play and of course, exploratory testing. Um, and, so so and, let, know, me get, let me get this straight because I'm, I'm going to act as if I know nothing about testing, which is not true. But sure. like, so if, if I take my analogy of, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to test an app. Indeed, when it's finished, I take a screen and start pushing some buttons. If that's my premise for testing, then what you're saying is basically I need to shift the testing to, this, to the early stages of the software development cycle. But I don't have screens to push buttons on at that stage. So how do you go about this? Well, that's that's the thing, I suppose. Um, a lot of a lot of us think that you can only test when there is something to test. Uh, like physically, you can look at a function, and that's all good. It still remains the same way as it was before. But now you wanted to make sure that in order for you to be more agile about your software development, you may want to start raising the bugs that you might see in the future. It's more of like risk-based approach, where you start thinking about you know how could this fail where are the issues that occur and then feed that to the developers so they can factor that in during development. Now, that ha what happens there is, you know, if, especially if you're working with startups or agile teams, that becomes a lot more important because you'll be able to ship faster if you do it that way rather than have all the problems being found late in the stage of the development. So, you know, it's, it's more of like not, not the same way as you have an app that you test. It's more of like a visualized you know, you look at the mental model of, of what you're developing and then start figuring out how this could have problems eventually and start discussing that as a team. Right. And you also mentioned that earlier on in, in the sort of waterfall approach, you had testing as a phase. So a group of testers would start testing all the way in the end. With an agile approach, they are usually part of a complete multi, multi, uh, you know, multidisciplinary team. So how, 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 do you, how do you recommend software teams to go about this well there are two ways you know your testers if they are dedicated testers of course you know they can contribute to the entire phase or to the to the cycle one is they could play more of like an analyst role where they help out the team to understand what needs to be delivered uh, understand the goals and flesh out the user stories and acceptance criteria the other way to do it is more of like an engineering tester where they start to automate a lot of the acceptance tests so that when the developer finishes developing, then you can just simply run the test and see whether they've met the criteria uh, for the user story. Yeah. So you know, there are different flavors as well, of course, in between, but uh, for the most part, it's what I've seen that's been the most effective. 
I think it makes a lot of sense because if you engage a tester into writing the user stories and, and a, a definition of done, then they're involved from the beginning. And I, I can also imagine that it helps a developer to become more aware of what he needs to look at because, I mean, a lot of developers have the inclination to just start writing code and then they say, I'm finished. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, I can imagine that having some testers on board in a team can sort of prevent that, or at least the tester could facilitate the developers to test their stuff well. Yep, absolutely. And 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 um, to make a step to my to 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 the topic of our podcast, distributed work. How how do you? Because I see a lot of setups in distributed teams. You could say, okay, I've got a product owner in let's say the Netherlands where I reside, and then I've got a team in the Philippines that is a complete scrum team with a scrum master, a couple of developers, a designer, an architect, and a tester, for example. But I also see different setups. I've got a client in the Netherlands who has developers in Holland and uh, Ukraine um, with a team of us in Kiev. And then they've got about 20 testers in India. I'm, I'm still impressed by the way they manage this because they're not a very large company. They've got 150 people or something. And their scrum teams actually, they, they have full-fledged scrum teams completely distributed. So what, what would you say based on your experience is the best or one of, you know, a, a, an advisable setup? Well, it, it becomes a bit of a challenge when you have, you know, distributed teams trying to play, you know, a, a role in terms of development using scrum. For one thing, the, the time difference is going to be a challenge. Second, probably some you know communication gaps and cultural differences around there, but um, you know uh, w what I've seen is it's it's not a matter of location, and uh, it's it's more a matter of being able to openly communicate, openly uh, work together towards the same goal. And you know if we're we're gonna talk about for example like best practices around it, of course you know best practice is always best practice as we always say, but some practices that are are quite good in terms of nailing this kind of a, a setup is one uh, and this is where my recommendations come in I suppose not just for testing but for the development team one is you need to start with why if you've seen uh, Simon Sinek's talk in TEDx he said uh, you know in order for, for for people to follow you you need to start with why and it applies the same way with software development and software testing because if you're, for example, working with a product owner who just gives you tasks or stories to, to work on, then you're just you know, going to be more of like an eight to five person, come in and come out, do the task, leave work. But once you start communicating to the team why this story is important, how it's going to add business value, what is it going to do to the users, how valuable it is for, it is for the business, then you start giving them more sort of input insights and um, sort of engagement into the product that they are building and this translates to actual you know testing work and this I've seen it happen uh, once testers are aligned on, on how things should work and why we're doing it they start also aligning their goals their tasks towards that okay. so you know it's I, I love what you're saying I'm, I'm just thinking about a little deep dive on this because what I faced is that um, what you say is absolutely true. I mean, if you have a team, especially if they're working longer term, because that, that's why you, if you're developing a product and your team stays intact for a longer term, you should absolutely invest the time to get them behind the purpose of that product you're building. Um, what I've seen 
is a complicated thing, is especially if it's a sort of legacy product. The, the, the product has been built in, let's say again, the Netherlands for a while, for a couple of years. They've been work, the team has been working on this, and now they add a couple of team members somewhere else. That team in the Netherlands has, they, they sleep with that product for years. So they, they, yeah. they talk about it, they, they know everything about it, and, and the team remotely doesn't. They don't know. They come in fresh. Um, and it's very hard for the onshore team to see what kind of knowledge they need to transfer to the offshore team. And often uh, it starts looking like those guys remotely don't understand what they're doing or they're stupid or whatever. But it's usually because they don't understand the product and they even don't know why the product is built, how users use it. Do you have some practical tools or suggestions for teams to yeah, sort of transfer this knowledge and get people behind the why? That's that's actually a good question. Um, I don't know, you know. I know a couple of solutions, but it's a tough one as well. People struggle with this. So. That's true. Uh, a lot. For example, if you're working with a legacy product, then it becomes a challenge to you know cascade the information to to the uh, testers that you're going to be bringing in or to the new people. But I suppose a couple of things that come to mind outright is one. Um, you need to, for example, you're the manager who's engaging another company to, to work with you. You need to create some stories around it. Stories make people understand how things have grown, how things have progressed. You need to give them stories on what the product is about, how, the, how, how it came about, how it helps people. Um, and then it, it gives you the opportunity to also explain uh, why certain features are that way or why certain functionalities are right. built this way than something else. The other thing, and this is more of like uh, in terms of actual practice, for the team who's who's being uh, for 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 the business who's trying to look for you know another team to tap, and once once they got them, one thing that's quite important is for the product owner, the team leader, or the manager from from the home country to fly in, spend some time with their team physically yeah. that location. And aside from you know, it, I've seen this a lot. A lot of a lot of um, Westerners come in. They treat the team to dinner, uh, lunches, and uh, you know, in fact. But aside from those kinds of interaction, you need to dig deeper into those team members' motivations. Start knowing them from you know from inside out. What are their interests? What are motivations? And give them an open line for them to also communicate back to you and ask you questions so that you know you can have that kind of a mental closeness altogether as well. And that gives the opportunity for the other side to be able to raise the questions. And sometimes it's tough questions that they need to ask. And uh, you know, as long as that line is open, then it's, it's gonna be a valuable thing for, for, the, for the teams to collaborate together and get to that why that we're talking about. Yeah, I love what you're saying because what, you know, it's, it's I think a lot of people start finding solutions for the problem that we've just discussed of engaging a remote team in process and knowledge transfer. But what you're basically saying is you need to start with people. You need to create bonds and you need to invest the time to sort of playfully transfer that knowledge. Exactly, exactly. I actually have a story around this and, you know, give me a minute to, to tell this. So. A couple, uh, a couple of years ago, we engaged a new CTO in Australia while I was working for a VC there. Uh, it's a VC firm, which is a software development team in Manila. Yeah. Uh, and then they brought in a new CTO. The new CTO on his first day actually flew into Manila to meet the team. 
Yeah. And uh, what he did, which was amazing, was over the next few days that he was here, with the limited time that he was here, he set up one-on-ones with each of the team members. And that's not just a few members. It's like all 30 members of the team here in Manila. And he spent some time to know, you know, what their, what their career uh, progression was, how are they doing with the teams, you know, what are their interests. And he also shared his own sort of stories around, you know, his, his career and his personal life even. And I guess from that moment on until the next year that we've worked together, it created a really open, you know, open line between him and the team and the team to him. And that creates quite a quite a seamless relationship, I suppose, over that year. Uh, yeah. and, and I thought that's really a good practice. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because it also shows to the remote people that he really cares about them. Exactly. And this was a setup where they had their own entity in Manila where people worked as an employee or they had a provider who facilitated them? Uh, it's a quite complicated um, okay. setup. But, uh, <laughs> you know, simply put, it's, they have a provider but their team, the team is actually theirs. Yes, exactly. I think that's actually what worked the best because I've seen that if you have a team which is completely with a provider and you make a agreement with each other where it's sort of a, you know, let's say black box, I throw in my requirements and they'll build it and send it back, then it's usually not working, which is incredibly tough. So I think this CTO approach is pretty, that, that's the way to go about it. You see it as your own team, so. no matter how the construct is and build engagement. I believe so. The other thing that triggered me is you said it's important that if as a CTO, you go to Manila for a week to, you know, talk about the product and also build engagement, that it's important for the remote team to ask a lot of questions about the product and and try to challenge the, at least to try to get knowledge out of that person who comes. What I found is in India, for example, I've, I've got most experience with India. In the initial stages of a relationship, this is very tough for people in Indian culture to do this because there is a certain hierarchy, their status, so there's a lot of factors that influence their ability to ask questions to a client who visits. And unless they've worked in my Indian company in Kochi for like four or five years, it, it often does not happen as you describe. How is that in the Philippines? The, you you know you, you got a good question right there and I think you nailed it. It's also the same story here in Manila for the most part. Generally, a lot of people doesn't you know feel free to doesn't feel like they they could ask questions, especially if they're facing a foreigner, right? Uh, like people from US, UK, or Australia. Um, and it's it's quite a bit of a challenge actually. That's one of the challenges I faced when I was building this team for the Australian VC here in Manila. Because a lot of, of my guys don't want to raise questions. They're just too afraid to ask. You'll sit in a meeting, and then when the, the, the turn of the general manager uh, to ask, you know, do you guys have any questions? Silence for yeah, the next exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I think um, how we've addressed that is we looked into, you know, people who are more, more uh, sort of vocal about stuff. We engage them. So it's like, you know, in your product development, you have your early adapters and the visionaries, right? If you remember, uh, I'm not sure who, who, who provided that um, uh, thought before. But, you know, you need to look for your early adapters so that in order, for, you know, for, for the change to cascade. Once we found a few people who, you know, can actually freely talk about their thoughts, a lot of people actually followed through eventually. It's going to be like a matter of like 6 to 12 months. But eventually, you were able to get them to speak up which is quite good. 
Yeah, yeah exactly. So you're saying it takes time. There are no short shortcuts. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm just thinking because I do a webinar once a month with um, Wasim Hussain. He's an, he's a, well, he was born in Switzerland, but his parents are from India. So he's a intercultural trainer between Europe and India. And I asked him the same question. I don't recall his, I'm going to do another one on the 27th this month. Uh, for, it's a webinar of an hour or so, but he's got a lot of tips. I don't recall what he exactly said. One thing that I found to work in my own team for a keeper is the, you know, Instead of asking my teammates in a weekly meeting, do they have any ideas how, how we could improve as a team on, on how we work or on the product we're building, to make a sort of sticky note wall online. We use Lino for this, which is a free tool with sticky notes. And to ask them every week upfront to share their ideas or to put stuff. And that actually worked much, much better because somehow that it's not talking. It's not me asking, do you have any ideas? But they can do it during the week, and that brings up more. That's a, I think that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. One thing that we've also used before, uh, maybe not as similar to, to what you've done, uh, we used uh, Slack. I'm not sure if, if you guys yeah. are aware. Yeah, all, all, all day long, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Slack, uh, when we tried implementing Slack, a lot of people actually jumped on board and started talking about stuff. So it's not just about work. It's not just about about the tasks that you need to do for, for a certain day. You know, we created channels there for people to just hang out and talk about stuff like pets or, you know, like funny gifts uh, or, or something like that. So I think when we created that channel, it also gave an avenue for people to speak up, even to, you know, the general manager and the CTO directly. And, you know, we, we, we have the CTO and the general manager also interact with them directly on, on that scale, So, which is actually good. It invites everyone to pitch in. Now, when they go back here in Manila, you could see that a lot of people are more comfortable talking to them than, you know, when, when they both started. So you actually managed to get people to share funny stuff in Slack? Because I, I did not. I haven't tried really, but... Well, gifts, uh, you know, the giffies, if you've seen that, you know, you can share giffies. Yeah, uh, lots of funny news. Some people share that. Um, so, yeah, we can, we can, we've already done that. A lot of people are quite happy with that. Yeah. Well, I'm just, exactly, yeah. I, I use it very functionally, but uh, I, I'm in the Slack channel of Lizette Sutherland, uh, Virtual Team Talk, and she's trying to, she, she started it two weeks back, I think. And she's trying to, to invite a lot of people. I think she might invite you as well to sure. start, start conversations about it, uh, about virtual work and what we could do together. But, you know, I, I'm still, it, it always looks like sort of chat module. Like we had 20 years or 15 years back where you had this chat rooms where people were just chatting and you have to read everything. And, okay, I think it depends on the person also. <laughs> yeah. You make a small step to um, uh, some tools to help people become more agile, especially in a distributed setting. I saw that you also give those workshops for management 3.0. I came across this method a couple of months back by meeting Lizette, actually. Uh, what, what is this about? Uh, it, it's written by a Dutch guy. I haven't met him, Jurgen Appel. Uh, what's, tell, tell me a bit more about it. All right. Well, I'm part of, of this uh, like a management 3.0 group of facilitators globally. And, you know, I think I'm the only one at this point in the Philippines. What we, what we look into management 3.0 actually is about being able to manage complexity, uh, like how do you manage self-organizing teams, 
but more than you know managing people it's actually about managing systems uh, how do you manage with fewer managers is most mostly the slogan around this and uh, it has sort of like six pillars around it uh, so you know how, how for example in my work with the Australian VC I mentioned earlier we have the setup is like I'm the manager and there are around four to five teams that are deployed directly to the startup. Now, as a manager, what do you do when you have self-organizing teams working together? And how do you sort of not dabble into the day-to-day -day, uh, work that they're doing? So Management uh, 3.0 gives you six pillars to work on, like energizing people. How do you empower teams? How do you align constraints? How do you uh, develop their competencies and how do you grow the structure and improve everything? So Management 3.0 gives you a framework of what to do as a line manager when you're faced with this kind of a setup so that you don't interfere with the work of the self-managing teams. So it's, it's just the high level of nutshell of it, but uh, you know, it, the, the framework is actually good. Um, it could give you a lot of hands-on practices and exercises that you can apply. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, because that's what I, I'm, I'm, I'm writing. I'm, I'm, I'm writing a, I just started this last week to write a book about like a sort of method for distributed teams because I find there is nothing alike. And I'm writing this together with, uh, in English, his name is Tov, Ralph van Roosmalen. He's a Dutch guy. And he's also, he's not a facilitator yet, but he's very fond of management 3.0. And I, yesterday we were working on the setup of the book and he came with a, the Metlec game, which is a, I think you know about it, but it's, it's a game to decide what kind of uh, roles you create in a team. And for our method, we're going to use it to create a session with a remote or a distributed team where they can decide you know which role to do on what shore because that's a question i often get if i have a scrum team how do i make a let's say cut in the roles what do i do onshore versus offshore so what i like about what i've seen so far from the method is those practical games and tools that actually help teams to discuss and decide how they're going to work is that that's that's one that's correct right yeah you you, you can also encounter a couple of other good games um that is part of the, the management 3.0 facilitation. Uh, one is about moving motivators, where you ask people to you know pick their motivation from among like a ten classification type ranking, and you know they get to rank it uh, based on whether they, they they are more motivated by is it about power, is it about influence to the team, is it about relatedness to the team. So that's one good game that you can you know use to your with your team. So yeah, those are, uh, I saw that those are the, the, the small nine or ten cards which are basically yeah. the core values that a team could adapt or adopt or use. Yeah. Yeah exactly. Right. Yep. The, the other game that the, is quite interesting within the, the management 3.0 framework is the delegation poker where you can you know you can actually play that with your team um, by, by getting for example a key decision area as simple as you know, what time do we come in at work? Uh, and then you can ask them to you know pick a card. Do you, do you do you pick a card from seven ranks, for example? And are we gonna just tell the team what time it is so that they need to come in, or are we gonna be deciding as a group, or is it about they decide and they just tell me? So you can play that card with them, and then get to understand you know how they're approaching the problem and whether you know how they want the delegation to be. Do they want yeah. more of like um, autonomy around it or do they want more control 
So that's another game you can probably look into into the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ralph showed me that one as well. Actually, the three you mentioned now he showed me yesterday. So. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Did, did, did he miss any other one? Or? There are lots of other games around it. Uh, like there's an Ellen game, but you know we don't want to go into too much details around it. But those yeah, are what I like about it is that basically because if I if I talk to people about agile, it's usually some sort of intangible thing because it's more about a mindset. And what this guy did is he gave practical tools to actually help teams to implement agile. And that that's strong. Yeah. I guess. That's good. Yeah, absolutely. And in your workshops, you do you help teams to learn those games so they can apply that. Like what does uh, a workshop look like? The, the games help the teams to understand uh, what, you know, what to do in a certain like, pillar of the, uh, the practice. For example, uh, energizing people is the first. So you use moving motivators to, to get them to understand more how to identify people's motivations. And then you could use delegation poker, delegation board, so that you could understand how to you know, empower your team quite more. Uh, so yeah, the games help out to understand the, the principles around management 3.0. Yeah. What would you say are the benefits of this method for distributed teams? That's a, yeah, that's a good question actually. Distributed teams, and I know if you will agree with this, but distributed teams create more complexity around it, primarily because you, know, you're, you factor in time differences now, you factor in location differences and culture as well and yes. modes of communication. So what Management 3.0 gives you is an opportunity to dive deep into those complexity and try to understand it not just within your perspective as a manager, but also uh, at the perspective of the people that you are also working with, um, especially now that they are in deployed into self-managing teams. So you know, that kind of a complexity you need to manage in, in some way. And, you know, the, the, the framework actually gives you some practices on how to deal with it. With yeah. Day -day. yeah, so what I can imagine is that for distributed teams, it helps them to get aligned and to make sort of agreements on how they're going to work as a distributed team. The only thing that I'm thinking along our talk now is we should have these games virtually or digitally. I'm not sure if that exists already. Because... You know, if you have those cards, you should go into one, one room, which obviously is the best, but not always possible. That's a good idea. We can probably create a startup for that. <laughs> Actually, maybe. I'm not sure if Jürgen will allow, but we could try, yeah. Okay, so let's wrap up because we spent about half an hour, which I think is enough for our podcast. If people want to learn more about you or get in touch, how can they reach you? Well, I'm in LinkedIn. Uh, just look for Ian Pestelos. We'll put and it in the show not, notes so they know the name, yeah. Yeah, there's not going to be a lot with that surname, so you'll, you'll find me there. And then you can also email me at ian at testcamp.com. Testcamp is T-E-S-T -E and then K-A-M-P. Okay, Testcamp with a K, okay. Cool. So thanks so much and uh, hope to see you soon. Thanks. Thanks for your time as well. Bye.